But yeah, good morning, church. My name is Andres. Um, for those who don't know me, I am the worship leader here at Pilgrim. I was born and raised in Mexico, which is this country with great food, lots of music, and really wonderful people. And I've had the privilege of living in your wonderful British Columbia for the past two years while I'm studying an MA. And this community has just embraced me and my wife and my kid so wonderfully. We are so happy to get to know you more and more as, as our time here continues. So yeah, um, I get the privilege of sharing the word with you today, and I'm excited to see what the Lord has in store for us this morning. It is always such a trip to prepare for preaching. Um, for me, the hardest thing to do is go to bed the night before. Because I keep waking up thinking like, oh, I should add this verse, or I should pop in this other idea, or I should move this thing around. I honestly don't know how Shell does it every week, but good for you, man. And I will do my best to be concise, to be centered in the screen, and also Jesus-centered in my preaching as we read and talk about scripture this morning. Um, so that said, I, I would like to begin by reading the three pieces of scripture that I'll be touching on this morning. So join me if you want to follow the screen or your Bible, whether you're using a digital or paper version, that's okay. Um, join me in scripture this morning. I am reading mostly NIV, and then there's a passage in Hebrews that's from the message. So let's begin. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Next scripture is Hebrews 2, verse 16 to 18, and it says, It's obvious, of course, that he didn't go to all this trouble for angels. It was for people like us, children of Abraham. That's why he had to enter into every detail of human life. Then when he came before God as high priest to get rid of the people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. And finally, the prologue of John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We come as we are. We know that sometimes we are alone and sometimes we are in community. Sometimes we are in shadow. Sometimes we are surrounded by shelter. Lord, some of us feel like exiles. Some of us feel surrounded and welcome. But as we walk together in this journey of Advent, Lord, may we encounter you in a new way this morning. May our hearts be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. And may we be transformed by the power of your word. In your name we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as most of you know or should know, um, we are using Scott Erickson's Honest Advent Book of Daily Readings to navigate this season. And we are trying to cultivate the longing for Christ to come, to sit in the wait as we transition from Advent into Christmas, and we're trying to do this in an honest, Jesus-centered way because 
This is a season where nostalgia is sort of everywhere, right? It's in the music, it's in the food, it's in the movies, everywhere. But we're trying to do the shift from, from nostalgia into wonder. I'm going to say that again, from nostalgia into wonder. In this last couple of Sundays, this Advent 3, we have been preaching on two words or two chapters of the book that we're reading as a community. And the two words that I'm going to preach on or focus on throughout this message are counselor and father. They are both taken from the passage we just read in Isaiah chapter 9, where Christ is revealed as a wonderful counselor and everlasting father. Now, just quick side note. Um, this is not a lecture or an academic uh, exegesis of Isaiah 9. This is a spiritual, Jesus-centered reading of Isaiah 9, a Christocentric hermeneutic, and Walter Brueggemann or Peter Renz are great if you want to dig deeper into this. It's, it's obvious that the vocabulary used by Isaiah speaks more of, of a king, and the word counsel really talks about the rule or the, the govern. And yet something happens when we read this passage in a Christ-centered, in a Jesus-centered way, when we are open to a spiritual reading. That's what I believe Scott is doing, and that's what I attempt to do this morning. So bear with me as we begin. The first thing I want to do is unpack the first word, counselor. I will focus more strongly on this word, and then use the second word, father, to land the plane. You see, I'm, I'm just getting started, and I'm already talking about landing the plane. We'll see, we'll see. Let's begin. Jesus revealed as a wonderful counselor. So I don't know about you, but I know we are all walking in different journeys, in different stages of life, but I think all of us reach a point where you realize that you need help. There's this moment in life where you arrive to the sometimes heartbreaking realization that things are not going the way that they should, that maybe you're not sleeping as well as you should, or you're not enjoying life as well as you should, that things are a little bit harder or seem to be harder than they should be. And suddenly, it just sort of hits you, you need help. I need help. For me, that moment came during my third year of seminary. Something happened during that year that just made me realize I wasn't really in control of my emotions. And I realized that I was stuck in this weird cycle of pain and nostalgia, and I couldn't break out of it. And after a very tough year, I realized and I decided to get help. I decided to pursue counseling or therapy. And it took me a while to find someone that I felt comfortable with, that I felt who was listening to me and made me feel heard. It took a while to find someone that I could trust my heart to. Most of the people that I approached at first only made me feel more unsafe or even more unstable or more lost. But eventually I landed with a counselor. I landed with someone who listened to me and was gentle and kind, but was also honest and practical and comforted me, but at the same time pushed me towards healing and helped me get back up on my feet. This person displayed a set of qualities that I believe are essential to be a good counselor. This person showed a heart of empathy for my situation and the long process of rights and wrongs that had led me there, but also showed a seal for me to become healed from the spiritual and physical trauma I had experienced and helped me walk down the road to be a better and healthier person. It became clear the more I sat down with this person, the more that we spoke, that this person understood my situation a little bit better than other people I had spoken to. This person understood my situation because this person had walked the same road before, had experienced very similar things to the ones I was experienced, 
experiencing was maybe just a little bit further down the road so had better insights to kind of walk into the features this person is leading you. And the thing is, it's easier to relate to a pain that you have felt. It's easier to understand the loss that someone is experiencing when you yourself have lost that same thing. So this brings us to Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus revealed as the high priest. In Hebrews 2, verse 17, Jesus is revealed as our faithful priest, our faithful high priest. And just a little context, the high priest was the one who was selected every year to offer the atoning sacrifice of the entire nation of Israel. It was the one person who took the mantle of awareness of wrongdoing and acted as a confessor in hopes of restoration between the people of God and the God they worshipped. In other words, the high priest was a frontliner, walking the line of sin and leading the peoples towards grace and ultimate reconciliation. And this is where it gets interesting. The high priest defined in Hebrews chapter 2 is able to help those who are suffering and tempted because he himself suffered when he was tempted. Hebrews 2 says he had to enter into every detail of human life. Then when he became before God as high priest to get rid of the people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. The high priest can lead us down the road because he has walked this road before. Jesus, our high priest, is not far from our pain. He is no stranger to our weakness. He has been down this road before, and he is closer to us than we think. N.T. Wright said something very interesting regarding this passage that I believe adds a little bit more color to the picture. So this is what he said, open quote. Above all other passages in early Christian writings, this one speaks most fully about Jesus as the oldest brother, the firstborn of a large family. It encourages us to see Jesus not as a kind of older brother who we resent because he's always getting things right and being successful while we get things wrong and fail, but as a kind of older brother who without a trace of patronizing or looking down on us, comes to find us where we are and out of sheer love and goodness of heart, helps us out of the mess." End quote. Jesus revealed to us as our older brother, guiding our very step, delivering us, delivering us from evil and leading us to places of rest. He comes to us as a high priest. He comes to us as a wonderful counselor. Now Scott speaks into this. He says the goal of a good therapist or counselor and the goal of a successful high priest are the same. To prize and cherish the ones who are being healed so that the person who is suffering may walk into healing and prize and cherish him or herself. The counselor sees value in you so that you may see that value in yourself. The counselor sees qualities in you that you don't so that you may come to see those qualities in yourself. The counselor speaks truth to your lies so that we may come to overcome those lies and walk into the truth. And the truth this morning is this. We worship a God who cares about us. We worship a God who understands us. We worship a God who has walked down the road before and we follow a God who will lead us all the way. Now many of us 
have believed lies about who God is, and that make, make this a little bit harder to grasp. We have embraced lies that tell us that Jesus is somehow repulsed or disgusted by our sin or by our weakness. Lies that tell us that Jesus is far from us. So unless we reach a certain standard of holiness, com communion is not possible. There's separation. We have believed lies that tell us that if you're a confessing Christian and you're suffering, you are weak and you should get more and suddenly you'll be able to reach Jesus but we miss the Jesus who is seeking after us who is running behind us who is trying to catch us and we miss that while we're trying to catch Jesus this is a very ridiculous example which is not on my notes but there's this movie by Julia Roberts called something like my best friend's husband bride I forget the name my wife loves it Best friend's wedding. There you go. And there's this scene in this movie where the, the guy who's getting married is running after his bride. And Julia Roberts is running after the guy. And then suddenly Julia Roberts is stopped. And she, she gets asked this question. You're running after him. He's running after her. But who's running after you? And the thing is, sometimes we're so busy trying to catch Jesus that we forget that Jesus is running after us. He's trying to catch us. He's pursuing us. The Spirit wants to be in communion with us. But we believe the lies because they're easier to believe than the good news of the gospel. And yet, it is Jesus who comes to us. It is Jesus who meets us in our brokenness as he has broken himself for us. The whole point of the incarnation is that Jesus didn't hide from our suffering, but entered into our brokenness so that through his wounds we might be healed. Scott Erickson summarized the whole of the chapter with the following quote. He says, Jesus became human so we wouldn't know he had nothing to hide. He lived in a complicated world so he could relate to our complexity of being in our world. His name is God with us so we would know we are priced and in that feeling of being priced would come to a deeper pricing of ourselves now some of us might be thinking wait so you're saying that Jesus understands everything I'm going through well that doesn't make any sense because you see Jesus never lost a soccer game mind you a league final when he was like 10 Jesus never had a flat tire because he rode a donkey or something similar. So how could he know what I'm feeling right now, standing in the rain with no spare tire in my trunk? Jesus never tried to buy chips from a vending machine, only to find out that he didn't have any extra change, and then the chips were stuck at the top of the machine, and there's no change, so then he, Jesus didn't have to push the machine while people were staring. It was embarrassing. Jesus doesn't understand me. Jesus was never fired from his job. Jesus never got divorced. Jesus never lost a parent. Jesus never lost a kid. Jesus doesn't understand me. And yet, there is an ontological reality that takes place when Jesus, the word, becomes flesh. There is a human, not legal, human consequence to the scandal of the incarnation. 
And the question is this, what happens when a holy God becomes human? What happens when the word becomes flesh? And Brad Jerzyk put it this way. He said, when the word becomes flesh, God does not assume unfallen human nature as if Christ is a second innocent Adam, but doesn't blow it. Romans 8 says, he assumes the likeness of human flesh, which he got from his mother. The whole of the humanity of Jesus was contributed by a woman who needed a savior and bore that savior herself. What happens when a holy God unites himself with human flesh? Religion says there is chaos. The gospel says there is healing. Or like St. Gregory of Nazianzus said in the 4th century. Now this is 4th century Theology of the Incarnation 101. That sounds so cool. I would sign up for that class. Like, no problem. Gregory of Nazianzus said this. He said, what is not assumed is not healed. Let me repeat that. What is not assumed is not healed. Jesus assumes human mind to heal the human mind. Jesus assumes human emotions to heal human emotions. Jesus becomes the true human being to teach us how to be human. Yes, maybe Jesus never used a vending machine. And parentheses in that, maybe. We don't know. But he inhabited our humanity completely, fully. He comes into our brokenness by being broken himself. He comes into our suffering as a suffering servant. He comes into our abandonment as an abandoned Messiah. But that's not the end of the story. He comes to meet us where we are so that he can take us to where he is. St. Athanasius said, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. He becomes the lost so that we may become the found. He becomes the broken so that we may become the healed. He becomes sin, what we are by nature, so that we may become what he is by grace, which is love. Isn't that a wonderful gospel? This is what we're talking about when we say, for to us a son is given, for to us a child is born. Picture this. In the deepest corner of the universe, in the midst of the silence and abandonment and pain, in the deepest, furthest corner of the universe, a child is born. And this love keeps expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding all throughout the universe, screaming the truest of truths. Jesus revealed as the everlasting Father. This is the scandal of the incarnation. We are no longer orphans to this existence, but sons and daughters of the everlasting Father. And in this journey of Advent, I think it's important to remind ourselves, especially in times of COVID and the everlasting lockdown and restrictions, we need to remind ourselves of this truth. We are not alone. Jesus who was the word in the beginning, who was with God, and through whom all things were made, and without whom nothing has ever been made, and who was God, this Jesus is with us, and he comes to us revealed as the everlasting Father. Now I want to pause for a bit 
and try to address something. If you're like me, you might be wondering, so one second, so is Jesus the son or the brother or the everlasting father? Can he be all three? Which one is it, Andres? This is very confusing. So to that, I say, join us next Sunday if you want to hear Shell fix this mess, and I'll go back to singing songs. <laughs> Let me just give you a benediction. Just kidding. Let's try to give it a go. Let's give it a go. Everything is tied to him. He is forever tied to us, and we are forever tied to him. We can never not be tied to him. Christ is forever father, mother, brother, and king to all of creation. And the mystery of God's will is finally revealed in the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ. God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ and bringing us into peace. Greg Boyd put it this way. He said, To say that Jesus is our everlasting father is not a reference to Jesus actually being the first person of the Trinity. Instead, it means that Jesus is our eternal source, which means that Jesus gives us an alternative narrative that empowers us to escape the narrative of death. Oh, that's good. To say Jesus would be the everlasting father is to say that Jesus would be the eternal source of God's peace. Jesus is leading us into peace. And this is the message of Christmas. This is what we're waiting for. All the longing that we're cultivating or the wait, this is what we're waiting for. The birth of Christ opens the door for peace, for real peace. Peace with God, peace with one another. Jesus comes into every part of our humanity. He breaks into every part of our essence down to the tiniest detail. Far as a curse is found, he comes to bring hope and to lead us into peace. The revelation of the Son of God, the advent of the incarnate Christ, where Christ is revealed not only as a counselor or a father or a brother, but as Bonhoeffer would say, as the ultimate human being, the real human being, the true human being, this revelation creates a space that is sacred, that is holy, where everyone is welcome, where we are seen and we are heard and we are known and are prized, where we are found, where we are healed, where we find peace. In other words, and to summarize this whole message, war is over if you want it. So I don't know what you're going through right now. You may be watching this a couple of days ahead, catching up with the sermon. Good for you. But what I do know is that we've all seen better days. I don't know what's the pain in your past, present, or future. I have no idea what burdens you are carrying this morning. I have no idea what you're going through, but I am here to tell you this. Jesus does. Jesus knows the deepest parts of your being. Jesus sees the deepest parts of your soul. Jesus comes to lead us into peace. Brothers and sisters, in this season of Advent, in this season of cultivated longing and waiting, it is important to know that we do not wait in vain. There is hope. There is healing. There is peace. There is a way out of this mess. Christ our Lord is coming. He will not delay. 
There is a new way of being human. And if we look to Jesus, we will find that way. We will find that truth. And we will find that life. And yes, this Christmas, we are going to celebrate that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But here's the thing. Jesus can be born in Bethlehem a thousand times, ten thousand times. But if he isn't born in your heart, it's all for nothing. Jesus wants to come into our brokenness. Jesus wants to come into our doubt. He wants to break into our aloneness. He wants to come into our pain. And he wants, desperately wants to lead us into peace. Today, we are lost in the darkness. And that's okay. But tomorrow, our eyes will see the salvation of the Lord. And we need to believe that. And we need to hold on to that hope. So as we come to a close, and I'm going to ask the worship team to get closer to the stage. I want to lead us in a prayer by Simeon the New Theologian, who was an 11th century Byzantine Christian monk and poet. And I think it's a great prayer for Advent and for us as we come to a close in this time. So as the worship team set up, join me in this prayer. Come true light. Come, eternal life. Come, hidden mystery. Come, nameless treasure. Come, ineffable reality. Come, incomprehensible face. Come, everlasting exaltation. Come, unfading light. Come, awakening those who sleep. Come, resurrection of the dead. Come, invisible and untouchable. Come to us Come to us who lie in hell, you who are above all the heavens. Come to us who wait in darkness, you who are the light of all the cosmos. Come, eternal joy. Come, imperishable crown. Come, you whom nations sigh for, who are souls desire. Come, the alone to the alone, because we are alone. Come, breath of life. Come, our consolation. Come, our joy. Come, our glory. Come, our divine light. For you, O oh Lord, our souls in stillness wait. Truly, our hope is in you. Truly, our hope is in you. Let's worship together. <laughs>